All right, so we got um, lesson number 20 in our, uh, in our work here, and we are studying legalism. Is that fun? So, yeah. Okay. So Romans chapter 2, and uh, we were looking in this these sections, we've been... Uh, going through this part that is talking about God wants the righteous to live by faith, but man has come up with his own ways to somehow find righteousness. And so uh, chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 25 because that's where our section begins tonight. Romans chapter 2, verse 25 we looked at hedonism, we looked at moralism, now legalism. Uh, we started that last week. But in verse 25, so Romans chapter 2 and verse 25, he's talking about the Jews, and he's introduced that in the first, uh, since verse 17. And he's been talking about the fact of their confidence in the flesh, their confidence in, in what they are. And so that, that sense of superiority was what we talked about last week, that they felt like there was a, they had a better situation than anybody else. And uh, Paul points out that that's not true because they can't trust in their, their works and their ability to do the law. But he's continuing that now as he gets down to this, uh, this final section that actually takes us into chapter 3. So... Start in verse 25. So he says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. It's like, Paul, what are you doing? This is like the craziest arguments I've ever heard. And he knows that. And uh, Paul's not to say, oh, I thought you understood that. It's, he's kind of doing a circular argument that is just going over and over. And it's like, you think this and you think that, but this is not it. Anyway, so... It's a lot of words, and we'll break that down a little bit here in just a few minutes. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise, this man's, this man's praise, is not from man, but from God. So the, a person with a true circumcision of the heart, their praise is from God, not from men. Now, chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? So Paul is already hearing these people, and so here's their, their argument coming back at him. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Paul says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faith, their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way or I, in <laughs> facetious. Verse 6, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, and their condemnation is just. What then, verse 9, are we Jews any better off? 
No, not at all. Wow, there's your endpoint conclusion. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. Which we'll take that up in our next section. So, when we are, when we're looking at this argument of legalism and the the feeling of superiority, our first thing is, but didn't God give them the law? Yes, but not so that they could glory in the law. Not so that they could glory in their ability to keep it. Or the fact that they had circumcision and other people didn't. And so, we'll look at some of those things tonight. But it's uh, it, it's this arrogance that they are building up. And that's what he really is pointing out. So, uh, outward cleanliness is the first section here. Uh, on your notes, and this is this is that on the outside. I don't know how many of you uh, have watched The Chosen. How many of you have seen any scenes from The Chosen? It's pretty powerful. It really is. But I, I really get a kick out of Nicodemus, and I'm only you know a few lessons in. I like the guy. I mean of of. Uh, you think of all the Pharisees, I mean, this guy's likable. Some of the other guys, not so much. His wife, not at all. All right. I mean, and she is the example, really, of this arrogance. We are this. And to kind of expect people to bow down when they walk down the street or step back and to treat her differently and and all of this and it's all outward show well that's kind of where this is now there must have been some people that Paul knew of not necessarily that he knew but he knew that this argument was somehow uh, or this situation was somehow affecting the church in Rome or he wouldn't spend so much time on it because he doesn't just talk about it here. He's going to bring it up more times as he goes through. And so there must have been some element within the church in Rome of Jews who were very proud of their Jewishness, very proud of their heritage. And all right, there's nothing wrong with being proud of your heritage, but when your heritage stands ahead of your relationship with God, and the, and the image or the walk that you are portraying to, to others, your public witness. And if your heritage or your lineage or your gender or race or education or age, yay age, um, has any kind of, like, I should be treated better than everyone else, then you're wrong. And so, Paul has to deal with this. They're not the only people he's dealing with. He dealt with the moralists and the, the hedonists. But here is one of the major opponents, and he's going to address them. He's, he's actually getting ready to launch into several chapters where this issue keeps coming up. So, um, this outward cleanliness, this outward show, when... What God is interested in is what? The heart. What's, what's on the inside? So let's look at a, and I wanted you to, to get this. So go back to Romans chapter 1, or I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, and this is 700 years earlier. All right, so Isaiah is 700 years before Paul, and you know, and he's writing to the people in the time of Hezekiah. Um, the Assyrians had just carried off the northern tribe, and it was another hundred so years before the Babylonians would carry off Jerusalem and and uh, take all of them to Babylon. But Isaiah is already 
speaking to the issues of this arrogant outward religion with no real love, service, worship of God from the heart. So Isaiah chapter 1, and I just want to read a, a, a portion of this because a portion is all you can take. But um, verse 10, I guess, is where I'll start. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. What? Rulers of Sodom? It's... Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Wasn't Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed like a thousand years before this? Yeah. So he's not really talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, is he? He's talking about uh, the Jewish people, <laughs> especially the priests and the leaders of the day. And so he says, uh, verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Mm, but he wrote the book of Leviticus. <laughs> so, I mean, he told them all these sacrifices. What's the problem? Why is God saying, I've had enough, when he's the one that told them to do it? Verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? See, Paul wasn't the only person that used sarcasm. God's pretty good at it, too. Verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. But God told them the formula. He told them how to make it, where to make it, where to wear it, when to wear it, when to have it, burn it, eat it. Yeah, all these. What? Why is this wrong now? Verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of your convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons. Your appointed feasts my soul hates, and they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes. This was their way of prayer. I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together. See, you've all read that verse. You just didn't read the verses before it. <laughs> He says, you got, you got a problem. Why? Because everything you have is outward. You're killing animals. God was not interested in killing animals. It was the blood of the sacrifice. If there was no heart in it, you were just killing an animal. And they killed them by the millions. And so they had all these beasts, and they would line them up at different times. You read the number of sacrifices that had to occur on some of the, the festival days in Israel? There, there had to be gallons upon gallons upon gallons of blood flowing out of the tabernacle, later the temple. At this time, it's in the temple. And all of this blood, but what is it doing Nothing. They're just killing animals, burning flesh, burning incense. It might smell good to people, but it stinks to God. Because it's nothing of the heart. It's not from the heart. So let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, 
They'll be as white as snow, though they are red like crimson. They shall become like wool if you are willing and obedient. You'll eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. I mean, it was really pretty up until there. But for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Woo. All right. I'm glad I wasn't a priest back there at that time. But that's the same outward presentation that Jesus ran into. And we've read Matthew 23. You are like whitewashed tombs. Whited sepulcher. You are a viper, a den of vipers. You're why was Jesus mad at the people? No, he was mad at the heart. A heart that was just outward. And that's where Paul is dealing with. If we're going to talk about God making us righteous, we've got to get rid of this. And so this becomes a major stumbling block to them. In your notes, I put 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's so much here, but I am not going to get into, so I just put a few verses there so that I can't get trapped into going through the entire passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is where he's talking about the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. And here's, here's a horrible interpretation of that. A lot of people think the letter of the law is the word. And so they say, you know, the word kills. No, the word doesn't kill. The letter kills. Well, it's, the letter is the word. No, the letter is the law. Read the passage. He's talking about the law. People say, well, we need the word and the spirit. You're right, we do. But the word is not the letter. And at one point, a number of years back, Pastor Bob was, we were, there was so much strange teaching going on in this one realm. And Pastor Bob taught something about it. And one of the men who opposed him said, well, he's just word bound. <laughs> Bob said, you know, if he thought that was an insult, I'll take it as a badge of you know, honor. That's <laughs> great. Yeah, I am. I'm word bound. So Paul's not saying the word. So when you read the letter, read the law. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the letter is what Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. And remember when Moses came down and when he brought out the law, he had his face covered. Why? For the glory of the Lord was what? Shining out from him. So why did he cover his face? So people wouldn't be blinded? No. That's not what it says. It's so that they couldn't see that the longer he was away from the presence of the Lord, the dimmer the light got. They couldn't see it fading away. Just like your fluorescent watch. My Apple watch doesn't need that. But, um, you know, fluorescent watch, it glows for a while, but then it gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And that's exactly what was going on. Why? Because the letter, the law, can only affect the outward person. The letter can make you wash, but it can't get rid of your pig nature. You want to go out and wallow in the mud. Right? So it's like, I know, I'm all washed up, but I can't wait for the next mud puddle. You know, and so you come to the temple, you offer your sacrifice, you put your hand on the animal, the blood flows, and you were supposed to do that yourself, and the blood is on you, and on your clothes and on the altar and the priest then burns your sacrifice and you walk out and you see the man standing in line who is the same person who made you angry enough that you had to make a sacrifice. So now you got to get back in line <laughs> and kill another sacrifice. So because the law couldn't change you in here. 
The law couldn't. It, it couldn't. Why? Because the law was all external. Do this, don't do this. That's all external things. It told you not to think a certain way, but it couldn't get rid of that want to on the inside of you. The, the nature of sin that was inside of man. The law could not deal with that. So, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is bringing out some of this. He said, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that is the law, now, he called it the ministry of condemnation. So he called the law the ministry of condemnation. Why? Because it pointed out what you could do or couldn't do. What you had done or what you had. So it was all about the externals. And so Paul calls it the ministry of condemnation. Did it have a glory? Yes. Say yes. Okay, yes. It did have a glory. Why? Because Moses' face was shining. But it was what? All external. It was all on the outside. It wasn't coming from the inside. So the light that was there, the glory, was reflecting because he'd been looking at the word, the law. God's law is perfect. The problem isn't the law. The problem is our inability to live by it. To let it change us, and it can't. Well, did God make a mistake? No, he knew that. So the law was given to lead us to Christ. Amen. That's what the New Testament tells us. So the law had a certain glory, but the ministry of righteousness, which is the gospel, must far exceed it. So if, if the law had a glory that made Moses' face shine, what do you think the ministry of righteousness will do? Because God changes the inside of you. And Moses' face could become dimmer, but ours will not. For we have the glory on the inside. Verse 10, he says, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory of that surpasses it. Whatever was in the law, whatever glorious thing the law was, this gospel of grace is much more. This gospel of righteousness. So, verse 11, for, what, for if what was being brought to an end, that is the law, or was fading away, came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory, which is the gospel. So the law made temporary change. It changed you to you sin the next time. But the gospel of righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ changes us inwardly. We can still sin, but we don't lose the glory on the inside. So it is our witness that hurts. In our ability to serve in the capacity that God wants us to serve. So there's much more in that chapter 3, but that's the point that Paul is making, that this attitude of the Jewish people, that it was external. It was not external. So look at verse 25. And so he goes into this thing about circumcision. And that's kind of a, like I said, a circular argument. This does this, but if this was right, and this person this, and whatever. So, so he makes this statement, for circumcision indeed is of value, what? If you obey the law. Otherwise, circumcision is of no value, because the purpose of the circumcision is not being fulfilled, which I'll cover in just a minute. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You, you're no better than a Gentile now because you're not living like the circumcision said you should live. So what is the purpose of circumcision? Look at verse 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. 
So I borrowed from ahead, brought it back to here. Romans chapter 4. This is the Passion Translation, which I like for a lot of different things, and it's really good on this passage. Romans 4 verse 11 says, It was later that Abraham received the external sign of circumcision as a seal. Listen to this. Circumcision was a sign. It was a seal to confirm that God had already transferred his righteousness to him by faith. His circumcision was a sign and a seal so that he could know that he'd already, get this, already been made righteous because Abraham's righteousness came before he was circumcised, and which is Paul is going to argue in the verses that immediately follow this. So, Paul asked, so Abraham's circumcision, was it before or after God said he was righteous? It was before. His circumcision came be after God had already made him righteous. And so, therefore, the circumcision didn't affect his righteousness. It was a sign and a seal that God had, what's, what's, how's it say it here, had transferred his righteousness to him, how? By faith. While he was still uncircumcised. So now this qualifies him, that is Abram, to become the father of all who believe among the non-Jewish people. Let's take a water baptism. Does water baptism save you? So if you get water baptized, are you saved? And then you... Then you go and, and profess? No. You profess your faith, then you get water baptized. What did the eun uh, Philip say to the eunuch? The eunuch said, here's some water. What keeps me from being baptized? Well, just that you get down in the water. You're going to get out of the chariot, get down in the water, let's go, let's have it. No. Philip said what? That you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead. Yes, I believe. All right, now we can baptize. Why? Because baptism didn't save. It's just a sign that you believed, that you have been saved. And so this is the image that comes from this. So verses 26 and 27, as we come back to Romans chapter 2, get really confusing but just go with the argument, all right? So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as true circumcision? It's not the circumcision. It's what? It's keeping the law. It's that inward reality. Then the one who is physically circumcised and keeps the law will condemn you who have a written code and and physically uncircumcised, sorry, the Gentile, can I just say it that way? The Gentile that keeps the law will condemn you Jews who have kept the law. That's basically what he's saying. Verse 28 sums it up. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Yeah, but... We've got the circumcision, we've got the sign, we've got the law, we've got all these things, we've got the temple, we do all these things, we do, we do the Sabbath, we do Shabbat, we do you know, our Saturday night, we do the things, we wear the little thing on our head, we, you know, we do this, we do that, I got the long pigtails, you know, I got the, the phylacteries, and I say all the prayers, and I say all the right words. Means nothing if there's no inward attitude of pursuing God seeking righteousness, seeking to live by this law that you profess. No one is a Jew who is outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Well, yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> but no, it's not. Water baptism, it's not the water. It's not the tub that you were baptized in. Like I, I've shared before, I had to baptize a young man, some of you know him, Serge Yudovinko. I had to baptize him in 
living water three months before he was going to get baptized, get married, because his father and her father would not approve of that unless he was baptized according to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And not Orthodox, Pentecostal. And so they're Ukrainian Pentecostal Church, and so they demanded that he be baptized in running water three months before they were going to get married was living water, running water. Yeah. And so this had to be running water. Well, that's what they call living water because it's because it's flowing and so it has to be that's what they mean by living water so it had to be three months before which meant it was like the first of april it was so stupid cold i i cannot even tell you went up to lake ulaga and had to wade almost a hundred yards out because the water is only knee deep you know until you finally get out far enough that you can get dunked oh my gosh it was cold and we were freezing but we got it done because it's the outward thing yeah it's got to be that kind of water it was dirty muddy there are fish nibbling at your legs but this is the kind of water we got to baptize no not clean water that we can put in a tank you know warm it up so it's the body temperature so you don't really feel bad when you get in no no, we couldn't go that way. No, no, no. We got signs we had to fulfill. We got, this has to be done. It's not the water. It's the heart. And the baptism doesn't save you anyway. It's the faith. All right? And so what he says is that, verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly. By Jew there we mean true. Yes, there is a race Jew. There's a religion, Jew. Somewhat the same, but not. The majority of Jews in Israel are not religious. They don't go to synagogue. They don't go to a church. They don't care at all. But they're Jews by race. But it means nothing to the heart. And so it says, and circumcision is a matter of the heart accomplished by the spirit, not by the what? Letter, which means the law. All right. And so then the top of the next page, the, the end verse that Paul has in this section, he says, this one, the person whose, whose circumcision is of the heart, which is accomplished by the spirit, that man's praise comes from God, not from man. The outward symbol, the praise comes from man. We baptized Serge in that cold water, and all the people said, yep, that's real baptism. No, the real baptism, Serge had already gone through. It was inward. He'd already been a believer for many years. and uh, But we had the outward sign. So the Jews praised each other for their obedience. Wow, great, great obedience. Great, you know, great beard you've got there. Great, you know, it's like, yeah, I like the way you look at this in a way. Like, great Shabbat service, man. You did that well. Perfect. It's, it's outward. God doesn't care about all of that. What God looks for is what's in the heart. So we come down to the next point, which is arrogance. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Now, what, what's going to follow is six questions. Paul's going to ask a question of an unseen opponent. So he's making this person up. And though maybe he's got some images in his mind, but he's basically pretty much making this up. And his opponent, Paul is putting words in the opponent's mouth that Paul then can refute. And this is a common way of, um, of debate that was existent in Paul's day, had been since the time of Plato. And so Paul is using this technique, and he used it a lot. Uh, it, it, it's part of the dialogue process that Paul would use when he went to the synagogues. That's how the rabbis taught. They'd ask a question, and they'd answer the question. 
They'd propose something, an unseen opponent, and the rabbi would refute it or point out where he's wrong. And so this was a common way of their teaching. It wasn't me asking a question and you answering. No, it's me asking, me answering. You don't get to guide the discussion. I'm in charge. You got that? There, there it is. See, you just answered. There it is. Okay, Romans chapter 3. So he goes through these questions. And this arrogance is portrayed here by this opponent. And some of the statements <laughs> that his opponent makes, or opponents, it's like, whoa, I'm, I can't believe you just said that. So let's kind of read down through them. I've tried to break them up in a way that, that they at least appear a little more um, defining. So chapter 3, verse 1. First question, then what advantage has the law-abiding Jew? What's the value of it? So what you're saying to me is what I'm doing is not worth anything. So what's the value of the fact that I'm a Jew? What is the value of the fact that I have submitted to circumcision? You're telling me that there's nothing in it. And Paul says, uh, well, no, there is much in every way. To begin with, the Jews, is verse 2, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And he ends here. Now he's going to take this up again later in chapter 9. And I put that verse in here. In chapter 9, verse 4, Paul kind of comes back around to the same question. He says, they are Israelites, these Jews, and to them belong the adoption, meaning that God brought them in, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, like I said, more on that later. But he, he gives a list of these things, and he says, this is, these are all benefits. These are all things that come to us, and they came through the Jews. So Paul's not saying that this Jewishness or Judaism was worthless or meaningless or empty of any kind of purpose, it did have a purpose. But not in establishing righteousness. Because righteousness is always the result of what? Four five-letter word, sorry, five-letter word. <laughs> faith. Righteousness is always the result of faith, not external works. By the law shall no flesh be justified found two times in the New Testament. So if, if you cannot be made righteous by the law, then what's the purpose of the law? Well, a lot of good things. The main purpose of the law was to tell you you need a Savior who's coming. So expect him, believe in him, hope in him. And when he comes, receive him and believe in him. Accept him and find life but for the most part they shut him off because even though no one lived the Jewishness better than Jesus it wasn't it wasn't enough for them it's not what they wanted so his first question what advantage this person's saying so you're saying that there's no advantage you can hear almost the, the snottiness in this all right and because that's almost the way it comes across so what is the advantage of being a Jew or circumcision which I have submitted to and this person is saying much Paul said I'm not saying it's it's useless from you came the oracles of God the very the very words of God came through the Jewish leaders, the prophets, the patriarchs, the poets. What a, what a wonderful heritage. But it doesn't make you righteous. Because righteousness is a result of faith. Question number two, verse three. Well, what if 
And the if is a first condition if, meaning they, they are, or since. What if some were unfaithful? Were there any unfaithful Jews? Yeah, right. So, what if some were unfaithful? So again, hear the arrogance in the person who's asking this. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Are you saying so because those people were unfaithful, then God's faithfulness is, has been taken away from us. It's nullified God's faithfulness. That God no longer cares about us. That God's no longer going to help us. All right, let's go back with a little bit of history. Did God just out of nowhere decide to send his people to Babylon? It came after what? Centuries of disobedience. In the temple in the days of, of Babylon, Jeremiah, right, the days leading up to that, in the temple, there's the holy place with the Ark of the Covenant inside, and here on the side are their own little alcoves with idols to other pagan gods. It got so bad, even earlier than that, Solomon, Solomon sacrificed his sons to Molech. Well, allowed his wife to do it. Solomon! What are you doing? So, let me ask you. Did God say, I'm done with these people? And walk away? No. Does their faithfulness nullify? The word nullify is a beautiful Greek word. It simply means to make useless. To take something that's working and make it not work. So, did, did that nullify God's faithfulness? Just because a person is faithless, it doesn't nullify God's faithfulness? He continues. How many are glad that would you become faithless? <laughs> Disobedient? God's faithfulness is still there. How does it say it? He's faithful and just. To forgive us our sin. So, well, faithfulness of God stands. So, yeah, no, your, your quotation is wrong. So then he follows that up with the statement, by no means, verse 4, down toward the bottom third of your page, by no means, Paul's reply, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. And he quotes from Isaiah 51, verse 4. Isaiah 51, verse 4 says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But, so Paul left, he, all he wrote down was the conclusion of that verse. He didn't write down the first half of it. So if you go back to Isaiah 51 and verse 4, here's the whole verse. It's right there. It's in the light blue. Against you, this is... This is David. This is David's song. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified. See, David says, I'm recognizing my sins because that brings justification to God. That glorifies God for me to recognize my sin. And so... I have sinned, I've done what is evil, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So this is, this is David realizing that there was a forgiveness, there was a, a restoration that God would give to him. And that's what Isaiah 51 is all about. David finding, crying out, pleading in the brokenness of his heart for the sin that he committed with Bathsheba, in Uriah. So, here's their, here's their thinking. That God was un 
faithful now because man was unfaithful. That God had promised he would help them, but David got faithful, and now God isn't around. And what's the first thing you're going to say? But that's not my fault. I wasn't the one that was unfaithful. It's David's fault. It's Solomon who allowed his wives to sacrifice sons to, to Molech. But we're suffering from it. Because their faithlessness made useless the faithfulness of God. So God moved away and God doesn't care anymore. Let's go back again. little review. You can go back and read certain Psalms. Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106. These are Psalms that celebrate Israel's faithlessness and God's faithfulness. Every time they were faithless, God was what? Faithful. He came to rescue. He came to help. He came to deliver. He would show up. When they went to Babylon, where was God? With them. He was right there. He blessed them. He increased them. And when they came out of Babylon, Cyrus said, give them the money to rebuild their city, to rebuild their temple. And when there wasn't enough, Nehemiah went back, found out there wasn't enough. He went back and the king, Cyrus, Darius, or whichever one it was, gave him more money to build this. It's like, wow, God was doing something. During all of those dark years between Malachi and Matthew, 400 and some years, where was God? Right there. Right there. Helping, healing, saving, delivering. No, we, we can't break God's faithfulness. You can't. And so the record of Scripture is that God is faithful. And our faithlessness doesn't change a thing. Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. That's what it says in 11.4, Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. So his faith resulted in righteousness, is right? Did Cain's unrighteousness cause God to become faithless? Did it destroy the faithfulness of God to future generations? No. God remains faithful even when we are faithless. And so God has declared that the righteous shall live by what? By their faith. Top of the next page. Question number three. And this starts to get pretty silly as Paul goes on because their arguments get even more Ignorant, if I can use it. By the way, that just means common. All right. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. Oh, here's, now here's a new loop. This is a good one. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul has to stop at the end of that and say, I, I'm speaking in a human way. I'm being exceedingly facetious, right? Do not take this as some statement that is true. So here's, what, here's, here's basically what that argument is saying. Our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. In other words, when I sin, does God show his grace and mercy? Does he? So then the more I sin, that's the argument. So, so that's what I say. If, if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? <laughs> that God is, that it's, it's wrong for God to inflict judgment on us when we've been wrong? If, if me being unrighteousness allows God to show his grace and his mercy his forgiveness, if it allows him to do that, then how can God judge me? Because all I did is I made him look good. 
Okay, now try that. Go back in your mind and try that with your parents. <laughs> Somehow my wrong behavior allows you to be the kind of parent that you're supposed to be in correcting me. <laughs> and, and so my wrong behavior, rebellion, allows you to be the parent you're supposed to be. I'm just helping you. <laughs> I'd still be in my bedroom. <laughs> All right. Paul's answer, verse 6. By no means. Now, this is a, in Greek is a very strong response. In no way. Or not at all. Sorry, but that's the way it would come across. For then how could God judge the world? So if God is going to judge the world, but sin somehow makes him look better, then how can he judge the world for their sin because their sin made him look better? That's the argument. Can you see how far these people have gone with their little trying to defend their self-righteousness? If all sin was accepted by God as simply a reason to show his righteousness, there'd be no judgment for sin at all. So let's just throw the book away, obviously, you know, because it makes God look good. God's righteousness is not seen. Listen, his righteousness is not seen in accepting our sin. It's not God's righteousness that is seen when he accepts our sin. His righteousness is seen when he has withheld his judgment long enough for us to receive his grace and mercy and find salvation and forgiveness for our sin. That's the gospel. That God didn't come down and kill Adam and Eve as soon as they sinned. If he had, what? Uh, well, none of us would be here. It'd have been over. So if every time you sinned, God killed you, that wouldn't work. So what did God do? It's not his accepting your sin. It's his moving your sin off until it's going to be dealt with. And that's what we find in this next statement. So let's read verses 7 and 8. But if through my lie, so let's just, let's just jump right into a sin here. So if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. So if when I lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, because God corrects it and he forgives my, my lie, even under the law. Did God forgive their sins under the law? Yes, when they did what? Offered a sacrifice by faith. Their sin was forgiven. It wasn't fully dealt with. It was just moved ahead to the cross. And so all of their sins were moved ahead to the cross. Every time someone sinned from Adam to Jesus, their sin was moved ahead to the cross. Can you see what was waiting for our Savior when he went there? Oh, yeah, and by the way, all of our sins from the cross until his second coming are moved back to the cross. God already knows, and he's already made provision for any sin that you commit. It's all been dealt with where? At the cross. Jesus is not going to have to come back and die again because you lied to your parents. So if through my lie, here's, here's, here's the lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I being condemned as a sinner? That's not fair. Verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? What good? God gets to show his grace and mercy. God gets to say, okay, I'm going to hold off. I'm going to show you my grace. I'm going to show you my love. I'm going to show you my mercy. So I'm not going to judge you. So I can go out and sin more. And the more I sin, the more glory God gets. Where in the world? But I'm not saying that this attitude isn't out there somewhere. Because it probably is. No. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 24. We'll get to this in a week or two. 
What does it say? For all have sinned and fall short of the God, God and are justified, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, there's that big word, I talked a little bit about it last week, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, it's the same root as the Greek word for the mercy seat. So hilasterion, that's the name of the place where they poured out the blood. We call it the mercy seat. What happened on the mercy seat? What did they do? What did they do on the mercy seat? Poured, I use a sprinkled poured. They poured out the blood. They poured the blood on the mercy seat. Why? Because the blood said it's been paid. Death has taken place. Life has been taken. And therefore the blood is poured out on the mercy seat. And therefore God's mercy is allowed to be shown. Because there's been judgment of sin. So propitiation is the acceptance of the judgment of sin and the mercy that flows. Right? So it's a, a word which simply means... I'll accept the fact that it's been judged, and now I can show mercy. And so that's the way. If you just tried to remove the mercy seat, what happened? Okay, you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, so, yeah. That it's the glory comes out and you die. Because you can't look upon the glory of God except that there's a mercy seat in between, and on the mercy seat is the blood of the sacrifice. And without the blood of the sacrifice, there's no mercy. So, they're, they're wrong in all of their assumptions, these questions. And Paul's reply simply is, their condemnation is just. In other words, all right, first of all, that's really kind of a really, really, really ignorant question. And the condemnation that you receive from that is, is, is just. You know, somebody that thinks that they, they're somehow their sin brings glory to God, your condemnation's already there. All right? Because, no, no matter how much you say it, it doesn't change God. And God judges righteously. The final question. What then? Oh, you got to hear the almost the brattiness of of this question thrown back in the face of God, Paul. What then? Are we Jews any better off? I mean, you've taken everything away from us. So we used to be pretty pretty close to God. I mean, right next door to God, we were right there. And you've, you've taken that all away. You're saying there's no benefit. So what then? Are we Jews no better off when it comes to righteousness? What's his response? No. <laughs> so what? Couldn't you just say, well, some? <laughs> all? It, it depends. <laughs> I mean, just a flat-out no? Explain. He doesn't. <laughs> he said, no, not at all. For we have already charged. It's already been said. It's already been accepted as truth. We've already shown you what the scriptures have said. We've already charged that all both Jews and Greeks. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't lump us in with them. Jews one level, everybody else down below. We, I can accept the fact that we're all, you know, going to receive the same judgment, but at least we're on a different level. No. God has concluded all 
under sin. Then he separates it, both Jews and Greeks. No distinction. And he's going to get more into that in the next passages. So, instead of glorifying God among the Gentiles, the Jews were actually dishonoring him by wearing this external religion. Again, think of the Jews at the time of Jesus, the arrogance with which they approached him at times. And yet, and I just throw this out as one of my wonderments, and yet, when Jairus' daughter was near death, I don't know what group Jairus did. He was from Capernaum. So... That's the first place that they gathered to decide we got to do something with this guy. And they were angry after the, the, the miracles he had done and they plotted together what they must do to him. Jesus had a number of run-ins with the leaders in Capernaum. Was Jairus one of that group? I don't know. But when his daughter was sick, where do you go? Right to Jesus. And what did Jesus say? What did he do? No, I'm not going to go. You wouldn't accept me. I'm not going to help you. He went and raised her from the dead. Right? That's our God. That's his faithfulness. How many of you glad that God didn't write you off before you got to that place? When uh, Jan and I were serving, uh, when we first moved back, moved here to Tulsa from Shawnee, serving at Sheridan Christian Center, dear Brother Millard, there was a man who had just, maybe within the year before we got there, he had just gotten saved. At the age of 68, he was a Jehovah Witness. And he got saved. Aren't you glad God holds off and doesn't hold all that stuff against you and say, no, you don't deserve it? He got saved. A couple years later, I was teaching at Ramah. Where was he? Sat right there in front of me. Wrote a book, traveled some, but of course at that age he didn't travel a lot. But You know, God is so great. All of our unfaithfulness doesn't stop the faithfulness of God. But he doesn't look at this outward image. Thank God. Because if God was judging by the good that we could do, then he's also going to have to judge by the bad that we do. And we don't want that. So, Father, we just thank you for your grace beyond what we can understand, beyond what we have ever imagined, beyond what we know. A, a grace that goes beyond any ability for us to comprehend fully all that you have done to save us. And Father, you took away all that arrogant pride that we had in ourselves, not because we were Jewish, but because we had our own system of pride and our own system of self-evaluation. But Father, you removed all of that, set it aside, and saved us. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, we have life. And we thank you, Father God, for your continued blessing, the joy that we have in you. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. And uh, next week, we'll continue with chapter 3. So, um, any prayer? If any of you need prayer or you want to join Jan in praying for some needs, we thank you for that. All right.
That's a good lesson. Oh, thank you. Oh, bless you. You mentioned Sheridan and Brother Miller. Oh, yeah. Brother Miller's in Sheridan was a stepping place. Oh, yeah. A lot of people. He just... He wasn't an eloquent preacher. No, and, it, and, and if it hadn't been for two of his daughters, especially one of his daughters, then, you know, he would be able to do a whole lot more. But... She she ran in Vanny. Oh my gosh. Oh man, she she ran Brother Millard. And uh, yeah. Well, uh, every major thing that God did in Tulsa started there. Yeah, almost. For yeah. decades. Well, if and if it didn't start there, it started at Central Assembly before that, and that's where he was. <laughs> that's it. So he was Assembly of God down there before that. Thank you, sir. Stephen. Question number two. You know, in your in, in your notes. Yeah. You had Isaiah. And you corrected yourself. Said it was from Psalm. Talk about David oh, writing. Yeah, but, but it's it's Psalm. I don't know why I put that down there. Right? You know, I, I can, can look at it. I can tell you exactly why. Because in the notes of your ESV, yeah, the first one is Isaiah 52. Yes. Four, right. And and that's that, that that's referencing. Yeah, and it's supposed two. to be Psalm 31 for. And then yeah. And then Psalm 51 for. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew exactly what happened. Yeah, it's one of those. I'm going to upgrade it before I pass them out to everybody. Yeah. It was good to hear Kirby.